Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Mohac, part two of two. In part one, I covered the expansion of the Ottoman Empire in the late 1400s and early 1500s, including the conquest of Egypt from the Mamluks in 1517. I also talked about the history of Hungary in the same period. Once a powerful kingdom with strong leaders, in the early 1500s, Hungary had been weakened by weak rulers and rebellions. A new king, Louis II, ascended to the Hungarian throne in 1516. But aged as 10, and with the political situation as it was, he would always have problems asserting authority over the powerful barons. As he grew up, he appeared to show far more interest in pleasure-seeking than in the business of trying to run a kingdom. Meanwhile, in contrast to Hungary, the Ottomans from 1520 had an impressive new ruler by the name of Suleiman, who over his long reign would go on to earn himself the nickname of the Magnificent. Suleiman became sultan in September 1520 after his father's death, and unlike some of his predecessors, his ascension was smooth and uncontested. A Venetian, Bartolomeo Contarini, who lived in Constantinople, described him in a letter. Quote, he is 25 years of age, tall but wiry, and of a delicate complexion. His neck is a little too long, his face thin, and his nose aquiline. He has a slight moustache and a small beard. Nevertheless, he has a pleasant expression though his skin tends to pallor. He is said to be a wise lord, fond of study, and all men hope for good from his rule. His first actions showed that he was a steady man of good judgment. In his first morning as sultan, with appropriate piety, he went in procession to the gate of the city, dressed in black, to meet the funeral cortege bearing his father's body. In the days which followed, he distributed the customary and expected gifts of money to the Janissaries and other household troops. He set 600 Egyptian prisoners free, and he redressed a wrong done to some merchants by his father in a fit of pique. Anthony Bridge, in his biography of Cinnamon, writes how this display of generosity delighted his subjects. This combination of fairness and firmness was what everyone looked for in a sultan. 
if the leaders of Europe hoped that the rule of a fair-minded new sultan might lead to a period of peace, they were to be sorely disappointed. Suleiman's first act of foreign policy was to send envoys to the eastern border to ascertain the situation in Persia. Having found that Shah Ismail was preoccupied with troubles on his own eastern flank, Suleiman decided to adopt a policy of containment there and turned his attention to the west. Most likely he saw the current weakness of Hungary and wanted to take full advantage. The Kingdom of Hungary had seldom been less well prepared for a renewal of the Ottoman advance or for the national crisis it would bring. As Charles V's ambassador to Hungary reported, quote, If the Hungarians were united, we are told, the richness of this country would enable them to defend it in the face of any enemy. But they are of the worst type in the world. Everyone is seeking his own profit, and if he can, lives off the fat of public property. They have no esteem for other countries. Though they feast together as if they were all brothers, subtly they fight each other. They are haughty and proud, unable to command and to obey, but unwilling to accept advice. They work little as they spend their time with feasting and intrigues. For the last few years, there had been a series of local raids across the Hungarian Ottoman frontiers from both sides, but no major confrontations. Suleiman's first move was to send an envoy to the court of King Louis of Hungary to offer him a lasting peace on condition that he paid a large annual tribute. The terms were very demanding, so the Ottomans probably anticipated their rejection, which they could then use as a pretext of war. If there was any hope of an agreement, it was thrown away by the ill-treatment and imprisonment of the Sultan's envoy. War was now inevitable. And so, on 16th of February, 1521, Suleiman led a massive army from Constantinople, which included a hundred items of artillery. At the same time, 40 Turkish ships sailed up the Danube to meet up with the army at Belgrade. Progress was quite leisurely, for the army halted frequently, either to rest the men or to allow Suleiman to hold court and receive dignitaries in his tent. As the army advanced across the foothills of Serbia in early June, they met little resistance. The terrified peasants had deserted their homes several days earlier, so the villages were empty. The Turks burnt them as they went through, and the garrisons in Belgrade and the nearby town of Sabac were given warning of the coming army by the plumes of smoke arising from the burning villages. The army was divided into two with one half going straight to Belgrade and the other half led by Suleiman to Sabac. The latter was defended by no more than 500 men, who fought bravely, but were hopelessly outnumbered and every last man was killed. Suleiman's troops moved and joined up with the rest of the army outside Belgrade on the last day of July. The city had by now been abandoned by its two aristocratic commanders and was cut off from any hope of reinforcements or supplies. First heavy cannon was fired against the city walls. Then, on the 2nd of August, a contingent of Janissaries tried to break through, but they were thrown back by the defenders with heavy losses. A week later, the attack was renewed, and this time the defenders 
reduced to a few hundred in number, had no choice but to abandon the walls of the city and retire to the citadel. When it was clear that no relief army would come to his help, the Hungarian commander chose to ask for terms of surrender. The survivors marched out and gave themselves up to the Turks, who promptly massacred them despite their earlier promises to the country. The capture of such a key strategic city of Belgrade was far easier for Suleiman than it should have been. It was in stark contrast to its heroic defence back in the days of John Hunyadi. Most of its able-bodied citizens were sent off to Turkey to be sold as slaves, and Suleiman and his army returned to the capital in triumph. As news spread throughout Europe, people trembled in fear, aware that with Hungary's southern defences comprehensively breached, the way to the heart of Europe lay wide open. Only preoccupations elsewhere stopped Suleiman from immediately following up on this great victory. In fact, next on Suleiman's hit list was the island of Rhodes, another stronghold Mehmet II had failed to conquer. His defenders were the Knights of St John, who only with great bravery had repelled a heavy assault in 1480. The Ottomans were incensed not only that Rhodes sheltered pirates who made attacks on their shipping, but that the Knights held as slaves many Muslims captured on raids while making pilgrimage to Mecca. Suleiman again commanded his army in person. The siege lasted five months, and the knights finally surrendered on the 20th of December, 1522. They had sustained great losses, but the survivors were allowed to go free and replaced with settlers from the Balkans and Anatolia. The knights sailed west in search of a new home, but could find no refuge until 1530, when Charles V granted them the inhospitable island of Malta, on condition that they take responsibility for the defence of the Spanish outposts of Tripoli in North Africa. The conquest of Rhodes brought the Ottomans one step closer to mastery of the eastern Mediterranean. Of the large islands in the region, only Cyprus and Crete remained out of their hands. In the meantime, war raged intermittently between Christians and Turks on the continent. In 1522, a large Turkish force captured a number of towns in Croatia. Two years later, another attack was made, but was repelled by a warrior archbishop, Paul Tomori. In response, the Turks poured into Dalmatia, laying waste to the countryside and burning villages as they went. They were met in turn by a force led by a Hungarian count of Italian extraction named Christopher Frangipani, who drove the Turks out of some of the towns they had taken and liberated their inhabitants. Unfortunately for the Hungarians, their nobility was split down the middle into two factions. While some nobles loyally supported the king, others followed John Zaporia who was the champion of the lesser nobility. Louis was an amiable youth, but seldom rose from his bed before midday and spent the rest of his day hunting before returning to the palace to enjoy dancing with the ladies of the court until the early hours of the morning. Zaporia was an able general, but motivated more by personal ambition than out of interest for Hungary and its people. Hungary desperately needed help from the West, 
but their court seemed determined to alienate all their friends just when they needed them the most. First they fell out unnecessarily with the wealthiest families in Christendom, the Fugas. The Kingdom of Poland, Sigismund offered to help Hungary in a peace treaty he was negotiating with Suleiman, but Louis ignored him. Venice made Hungary an offer of alliance, but Louis petulantly rejected it on the grounds that the Venetians had failed to pay an old debt to the Hungarian crown. It was no surprise then that Hungary was left to fend for itself, although to be fair, it is quite unlikely that Europe's leaders would have provided much assistance in any case, occupied as they were with their own troubles. Especially as the two most powerful leaders in Christendom, Emperor Charles V and Francis I, were still at war against each other. Suleiman saw Charles V as his principal rivalry for mastery of the known world, and was concerned by his decisive victory over Francis at the Battle of Pavia of the 24th of February 1525. Whilst in captivity, Francis smuggled out an appeal to the Sultan for an alliance against the Habsburgs. In many ways such an alliance made sense, but it was extraordinary for a Christian leader to be so blatantly offering to cooperate with an infidel. Such an act would have been unthinkable at almost any time during the previous three or four centuries, even more so for a king of France, many of whose predecessors had fought on crusades. But times had changed. In early 1526, Suleiman once more led a large Ottoman army from Constantinople towards Hungary. His exact aim for the new campaign was not clear whether to seek a decisive victory and conquer Hungary, to put it under vassalage, or just to capture specific towns. Unlike in 1521, the weather was appalling, with almost continual rain and bitterly cold winds. Outside the city of Philippopolis, on the 26th of May, the army was battered by a violent hailstorm, and a few days later they reached Sophia in driving rain. Some rivers were so swollen they could not be crossed, forcing the army to take diversions. But the Ottomans were not deterred and pressed on, seeking battle. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Their first target was the Serbian town of Petrovarden, where the army arrived on the 15th of July. The town itself was taken without hardly a fight, and the garrison retreated to the citadel. The Turks took two weeks to break through into the citadel. Of the men of the garrison, 500 were immediately beheaded, and the other 300 were sold as slaves. 
Understandably, the next towns the Turks encountered surrendered without delay. Next they reached the river Drava, the last great natural barrier between the invaders and the Hungarian army. Suleiman was surprised to find the river undefended, unaware that his enemies were still arguing among themselves about the best way to check his advance. In May, the month before, Louis and the Royal Council had decreed that the noble levy should assemble at the town of Tolina on the 2nd of July. However, despite the imminent threat, the call to arms was met with only a minimal and grudging response, even in the southern region most directly threatened. Many barons simply ignored the call, and lesser nobles were reluctant to leave their estates at harvest time. Only a few hundred assembled at Tolna on the appointed day, and when Louis II rode out from Buda on the 20th of July, his army comprised only 4,000 men. In August, the mobilisation slowly started to gather momentum, so that by the time he reached the small town of Mohach on the 23rd of August, his forces numbered some 25,000 men, with further contingents of Bohemian and Polish mercenaries expected at any time. Meanwhile, John Zapolia had been instructed to lead a diversionary operation through Wallachia in an attempt to compel Suleiman to detach part of his force. This may well have been an effective strategy, if started sooner and carried through, but in the last minute Louis recalled him to join up at Mohach. As the Turks advanced, the Hungarians debated the best tactics. Some favoured creating a scorched earth zone, behind which the defenders could withdraw and attack when the enemy's supplies were low. Others preferred building defensive fortifications in the plains around Mohach. In the end, the issue was decided by the speed of the Ottoman advance. A retreat had the danger of turning into a rout, and there was no time to prepare elaborate defences. And so, on the morning of 29th of August, 1526, the Hungarian army of about 25,000 positioned itself on the plains of Mohac to confront the Ottoman army advancing before them. The two main commanders were Archbishop Paul Tomori and John Zapolia's brother, George. Suleiman is known to have left Constantinople at the head of about 100,000 men, although not all were frontline troops and a number would have been lost in battle or through sickness on the way. Still, his army clearly outnumbered the enemy by at least two to one. The Hungarians probably should have chosen their ground and waited for the Turks to attack them. Perhaps they could have formed up behind the barrier of their armoured carts, a battle tactic devised the previous century by Jan Zizka in the Hussite Wars, and certainly used in Hungary in this time. But despite what seemed like overwhelming odds against them, the Hungarian leaders appeared optimistic and ready to take battle straight to the enemy. At about three o'clock in the afternoon, the first line of Hungarian cavalry hurled itself against the Turks. At first they made good progress, and the infantry followed up behind, until they came up against the main body of the elite Ottoman infantry, with the Janissaries at its core. The Turkish artillery, hidden behind a slope in the ground, chose this moment to open fire. Although firing mostly over the Hungarian heads, they forced the advance to a virtual standstill. 
to Murray then ordered flanking movements by his cavalry, which again at first had some success, but failed to make a decisive impact. As a last resort, he called upon the remainder of the Hungarian forces, led by the king, to advance against the centre, but they were also unable to make much progress. Sudermann now ordered a counter-attack on both flanks, encircling the main body of Hungarian troops. This offensive proved devastating, and almost the entire Hungarian army was slaughtered where they stood. King Louis was wounded and tried to escape from the battlefield, but he fell from his horse into a river and drowned. Archbishop Tamari was also killed, together with two other archbishops, many bishops and hundreds of nobles. In total, the Hungarians had more than 20,000 casualties, compared with only about 3,000 for the Ottomans. For Suleiman, the campaign was not yet over. With no one to stand in his way, he led his army up the Danube to the Hungarian capital of Buda, which he reached on the 18th of September without meeting any opposition. The city was mostly abandoned, and those who stayed offered to surrender immediately. Suleiman promised that Buda would not be sacked, but his troops, after months of heavy campaigning, had other ideas. They looted the palaces, churches and private houses, raped the women and set fire to the city buildings. A week later, they crossed the Danube on a newly constructed pontoon bridge and entered the town of Pest on the other side of the river. This time, Suleiman made no attempt to prevent his troops from sacking and pillaging. The next day, however, the Sultan gave the order to return home. It was late in the campaigning season, so carrying with him the treasures of the royal castle of Buddha, together with most of the famous library assembled by Matthias Corvinus, he set off back to Constantinople. On their way back, the Turks met a lot of resistance from peasants desperate to protect their livestock and stores of winter food. Casualties were heavy on both sides, and the Turks probably lost more men during their march home than at Mohach. Still, Suleiman returned as a hero, having already at the age of just 32 achieved three great victories. The captures of Belgrade and Rhodes, plus now the annihilation of the Hungarian army. The Battle of Mohach and the burning of Buda and Pest finally woke the leaders of Western Europe to the very real threat now posed by their most fearsome neighbour. However, Suleiman decided not to try and occupy the whole of Hungary, opting instead to retain only the most important southern part of the country and retiring his army to its winter quarters in Belgrade. The Battle of Mohach initiated a titanic struggle for Central Europe between two superpowers, the Ottomans and the Habsburgs, which would last for the next century and a half. For the next two years, Suleiman was too preoccupied with troubles in Anatolia, which prevented him from immediately following up on his victory. This allowed a struggle to take place between the two competing candidates for the Hungarian throne. John Zapodia was elected as the new king by the Hungarian Diet and crowned in November 1526. However, Archduke Ferdinand, younger brother of Emperor Charles V, also laid claim to the throne of Hungary, as well as Bohemia, on behalf of his wife, who was Louis's sister. At first, Zapodia appeared to have the upper hand. 
in command of the only significant Hungarian military force, he took over the burnt-out city of Buda. With nine-tenths of the country behind him and messages of congratulation from the likes of France, England and Venice, his control looked secure. But rather than seizing the chance to wipe out all Habsburg resistance, he agreed to a six-month truce with Ferdinand. This gave the Archduke the time to plan his counter-attack, and as soon as the six months was over, he invaded Hungary. Ferdinand enjoyed the support of a small number of barons, for whom the harsh lessons of Mohac was that Hungary could not hope to withstand the Turks without a foreign ally. With Zapolya lacking enough military support to put up serious resistance, Ferdinand quickly took city after city. He entered Buda in August 1527, and two months later was crowned King of Hungary. Symbolic of the chaos was that the coronation of both Zapolya and Ferdinand had been performed by the same bishop. In fact, much of the nobility were hedging their bets as to which side would come out on top. Zapolya, after suffering a defeat in the region of Tokay, took refuge in Transylvania. After another defeat, he fled, this time to Poland. In desperation, he reluctantly took the only option available to reclaim Hungary. He dispatched an emissary to Constantinople to seek military assistance from Suleiman. As the victor of Mohac, the Sultan was happy to make a show that the Hungarian crown was his to bestow, and happily agreed to intervene. But his ambitions for Central Europe went much further than that. The next target for a Turkish invasion would be no less than the imperial city of Vienna. In 1529, Suleiman led a large Turkish army through Hungary. With a good eye for dramatic effect, but little respect for Hungarian feelings, he met Sapolya on the blood-soaked fields of Mohac and performed a ceremony restoring to him the Kingdom of Hungary as a vassal of the Ottomans. Ferdinand had insufficient resources or manpower to consider trying to defend Buda, which was recaptured by the Turks soon after. The Ottoman campaign was delayed, not by his military opponents, but by some appalling weather. Heavy rain fell throughout the summer, causing floods and making rivers impassable. It was late September by the time the bedraggled Ottoman troops finally reached the city walls of Vienna. As they settled into position, the Austrian garrison launched sorties to disrupt the mining of tunnels below the city walls by Ottoman sappers. More rain fell on the 11th of October, and with the Ottomans failing to make any breaches in the walls, the prospects for victory began to fade rapidly. Also, Suleiman was facing critical shortages of supplies such as food and water, while casualties, sickness and desertions began taking a toll on his army ranks. On the 12th of October, the Sultan convened an official council, where it decided to attempt one final major assault on Vienna. However, this assault was also beaten back, and so the decision was made to return home. Historians are divided as to the real intentions of Suleiman in his campaign of 1529. Perhaps he was testing the waters for a follow-up invasion later on, and was most interested in consolidating his hold on Hungary. 
Either way, the Sultan's ultimate ambition was now clear. There was no more any doubt in the minds of Europeans that the Turks would be back. It was just a question exactly when and where, and whether next time it would be their turn to succumb to the seemingly invincible Ottoman Empire. My name is Karl Weilert, and you've been listening to the A History of Europe Key Battles podcast. As always, it would be great to hear from you. You can get in touch on the Facebook page or on Twitter at History Europe KB, KB for Key Battles, or on the blog www.historyeurope.net. Or you can write to me directly to the email address karl at historyeurope.net. I hope you can join me next time as I return to Russia, to the Russia of Ivan the Terrible, as he expands into Asia, and the siege of Kazan of the year 1552. Until then, all the best, and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.